Hello and welcome to another episode of the Asking for a Friend podcast, an elder-led ministry of Believers Baptist Church in Emory, Texas. My name is Duffy Henderson and I'll be your host. The Asking for a Friend podcast exists as a weekly resource for the edification and benefit of God's people. Here we hope to provide helpful, thoughtful, and most importantly, biblical material as we address everyday life questions and issues. If you find this podcast helpful, please take a few moments to share it with someone that you think would also benefit from it. Thanks again for listening in, and may the Lord bless this podcast greatly to you as a means of grace for your spiritual growth and benefit. We hope you'll enjoy today's episode. Well, once again, I'm joined by Jason Rowland and Philip Castleton. You guys doing okay today? Absolutely. Beautiful day that the Lord has given us. Amen. Amen. We are back, um, folks, we're back taking a little hiatus from the typical question style that we do here on the podcast. We're looking at today um, a chapter in the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, specifically chapter 7, dealing with God's covenant. Last week we covered God's decree, and the emphasis of these particular episodes are really to add content for our church membership. We are taking our church right now through the London Baptist Confession of Faith, um, systematically, chapter by chapter, and attempting to adopt this, uh, voting on and adopting this at some point soon um, as an additional statement of faith to solidify our doctrinal position of our church. So this is primarily just a resource for our church members and maybe friends or family members. So this is going to be conversational again through the chapter 7 of God's covenant. So let's just go ahead and begin right off the bat. This is the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, um, and specifically we'll be reading from the text edition from founders.org, foundersministries.org. This can be found online, and it's in. Um, there's a paper copy print that you can purchase from them as well. And so that will be the text edition we're reading from. Let me start off by reading paragraph one, chapter seven. Though rational creatures are responsible to obey God as their creator, the distance between God and these creatures is so great that they could never have attained the reward of life except by God's voluntary condescension. He has been pleased to express this through a covenant framework. Now this first opening paragraph of the Confession, chapter 7, is just kind of getting the conversation going so more of the meat of the podcast and conversation will happen in uh, paragraphs two and three. But Jason, uh, Philip, whichever one of you guys want to take this, kind of get the conversation going with this this morning. Uh, I know that, Philip, you're doing the uh, teaching uh, to our congregation on Sunday mornings during our Sunday school hour. So um, you've looked at this and, and thought about it. But I'll, I'll give, it some, give it some context to start with. Uh, the, the first sentence Though rational creatures are responsible to obey God as their creator, the distance distance between God and the creature is so great that they would never attain the reward of this life except by God's voluntary condensation. And so he has condescended to us. And then the last sentence of the paragraph says that he has done this through a covenant framework. And so what we want to be able to do is start talking about then what a covenant framework is. And before we went on air, Philip, you mentioned, and, and I think this is true, um, in Southern Baptist life in particular, and in the modern uh, 
Christian life of America today, dispensationalism or premillennialism um, is the thing that is spoke um, about primarily when we're talking about eschatology forms and uh, end time timelines and those kinds of things. Uh, dispensational thought is, is used. And so then the word covenant is not even thought about uh, by the average Christian in the, in our church pews. And, and, and unless they read it in scripture and they read about uh, God making a covenant with Abraham, for example, in Genesis 15. So how do you think about then, then when, when we start talking about a covenant framework? And so I think yeah. that's what is going to take us off from uh, this opening statement to the other two uh, paragraphs of the chapter. Yeah. Well, I, I think there's even more being said here than that, and let me let me tell you why. Um, you know, so much of our 1689 is a um, offshoot of the Westminster right confession, and and it certainly is. This idea of covenant is a an oath or a promise that God has made to do a certain thing. Really, that's the framework in which He operates. But we, it, it, the reason is here that necessitates a covenant is because there's a distance between God and man. Right, that that cannot be um, closed by man. Right, that's what the opening statement says. Right, though though man is a rational creature and responsible, there is such a great uh, and dramatic distance that that between God and the creature that God must voluntarily condescend um, if man is going to have life because he could never earn it. And and this is really important because. In the Westminster, in some of the places, they actually use this idea of a covenant of works that they begin here with. The 1689 doesn't use it, that 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 that, te- that wording, and that's very important because I would not argue that I think the Presbyterians mean that Adam could earn life, but the 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 word covenant of works assumes that that. God made a deal with Adam. If you do this, you'll earn life. If you don't, you'll earn death. But our statement here makes clear that there was such a gap between man and God that even man couldn't earn life, right? Life was only possible in man if God condescends. And I say that, and they base this on Luke 17.10. When, and that, that text says, um, even when you obey, have you earned anything? No, you're just doing what is required of you because you're the creature, right? If Adam in the garden never sins, he hasn't earned anything. He's only done the bare minimum, and that is what is required of him, you know, because he is the creature, not the creator, right? He's not earned anything. That's what's owed. Obedience is what's owed. And so when it starts here talking about this voluntary uh, condescension, that's very important. Because Adam, had he not sinned, he still wouldn't have earned life. Life was Adam's because God condescended to Adam, right? And God swore life to Adam and gave life to Adam. And then we're going to see in paragraph two that Adam, in his actions of sin, brings death upon himself. But Adam didn't earn it. So this opening paragraph begins to set up for us this need for a covenant. Why? Because this gap between man and God is so great and even if man had not sinned, he wouldn't have earned anything. All he'd have been doing is the bare minimum, right? That which the creator, creation, distinctive requires. Right. I, th- I think Presbyterian 
start with a covenant of redemption. Help me think about this. A covenant of, a covenant of redemption, which is um, pre-time, uh, a covenant between a Trinitarian covenant between the Father, sure. Son, and Holy Spirit for the work of redemption for mankind. We talked about that last week, yeah. uh, even a little bit, in Christ the Mediator. Sure. Right. And then there is the the covenant of works mm-hmm. that God made with Adam, this idea that... And I'm saying, I'm not saying that they believe that Adam earns. I'm saying that right. the, the, the terminology, which right. we don't use here on purpose, well, the, it can the confession be uses it. It does use it in chapter twenty. It does, but but it, and, but I'm saying but here the terminology, they do it so and I understand where you're getting. Yeah. I just wanted to be for clarification. The term sometimes we 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 use terms that are not in scripture to do the the best job that we can to communicate what we find in scripture. So the term covenant of works um, on on its face could have a not. A lot of times, that term carries with it a connotation that's that is not meant by the term. And uh, I don't think in the it confession. Is. Uh, yes, that's my correct, point. Correct. My point is that I think it's, the reason that the 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 framers of this yeah. didn't use it here, not because it's a bad term, but ultimately because it carries with it um, un, unnecessary connotations that we read sure, into it. That's sure. my point. And and let me throw this in to kind of again stoke this flame as we're talking. Um, Parisia books, uh, I'm not sure how exactly to, to say that word, um, but they have a great blog series that, that takes us through the 1689 London Baptist Confession. It's written by several pastors and theologians and commentators, but there's one particularly on this chapter. And uh, they, they begin with, with this saying, the scriptures are clear, the God of heaven and earth, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit um, is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. And within the Reformed Orthodox tradition, two views predominate regarding covenant, God's covenant revelation and his re- relationship to man. There are those who subscribe to a two-covenant view of God's revelation, namely a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. This understanding of God's covenant-making and covenant-keeping views any idea of a covenant of redemption as a part of the covenant of grace. Those who subscribe to a three-covenant view of God's covenant relation see a covenant of redemption, a covenant of works, and a covenant of grace. So those are the two distinctions. I think, Jason, correct me if I'm wrong, that's where you were kind of playing into this. And I, the, Baptist, the Baptist position, the covenantal Baptist position from our Baptist forefathers like Benjamin Keach, William Kiffin, and uh, Hansard Knollis, those guys who, were, uh, who penned the confession in 1689, who were pastors, and they were separating themselves consciously and publicly from the Reformed Presbyterian views. And so this document was written, um, uh, taking its flames and fuel from the Westminster Confession, but distinguishing itself from the hermeneutic that is erroneous in the Westminster Confession that condones infant baptism and this um, flattening of the covenants. Right. So this, this conversation, um, our Baptist forefathers distinguished particularly the covenant of works and the covenant of grace and thought of it differently than the Presbyterians that they were friends with and they were um, in large community with and what they pulled from. And so I know that that's a little bit in the weeds, a little bit uh, with with 
as far as this idea of covenant, but this is kind of just some introductory talk. So I don't know, Philip, you want well, to bring... Well, no, but I was just trying to make the point that in this opening paragraph, what's, what's imperative here is the distance between God and the creature, and that because... I think they purposely don't use the word covenant of works here because of, it gets you in the weeds so easily, right? And so what they said is they actually say here, man couldn't earn, you know, life, so God had to condescend. And this is the point that ultimately uh, what we need to know about God's covenant is God is the one acting, right? God is the one who has given himself to act. Why? Because of this gap. Man cannot do, therefore God does. And that's, that's well, really and we see the big picture. We see this, the whole reason that Christ came was to, he is the mediator of a better covenant, of a better, pro, he brings better promises, right? Right. So this is this distinction in, in the book of Hebrews, the author distinguishes between this pre-fall covenant that whatever you want to title it, however you sure. want to work those things out, there is something there in Genesis chapter two that we see. Um, there is a, uh, we could open scripture and read that, but there's a, a promise for this and a, um, a consequence for this. Mm-hmm. There's a, a duality there that God speaks to Adam and says, this is your role. This is what I've, this is what you are to do. And it's found in Genesis chapter two. So the author of Hebrews well, makes I that distinction the, with, with Christ. Yeah, but that the thing a, is, is, he doesn't promise life for obedience. They already have life. The, the command is obey. I, I've given exactly. you life. And there's obey. a consequence. I, there is a consequence for, for disobedience. And that's what paragraph two is going to talk about. That's part of the covenant about. of works. Yes, but, but the point, of. that's what the point I'm trying to make ultimately though, yes. is that what God doesn't say is if you do this, you'll live. He already gave them life and then commands them to go obey, right? He didn't promise life contingent upon their obedience. He they could never earn obedience, right? They could never earn life because of their obedience. And that's the point that, that the, the first paragraph is, is seeking to establish for us. He doesn't promise them life. He promises them death upon disobedience, but he doesn't promise them life based on obedience. He's already given them life. Right. True. And then says, now go obey. Yes. And that's the point I'm trying to make. So he's saying, because this gap is so great between God and man, man could never earn his way into life. So God condescended, gave him life. Right. And then gave a warning. If you do this, you will die. And that's where we're going to find ourselves in paragraph two. Right. And this is where we go from that position, whatever we want to call that, to this 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 yes. Um, yes. covenant of grace. And that's which where we, we see have, established. Yeah. And that's where we uh, we'll go to you, Jason, in just one moment. But that's where we had this um, duality in Romans chapter f- uh, five, where we had this federal headship that either we're in Adam or we're in Christ and that Christ, ult- uh, that Adam ultimately failed in this uh, covenant that God made with him and that Christ um, fulfills the covenant. And this this is the argument. Sometimes there's there's a debate between if there is a covenant of redemption or not. I kind of lean toward that. But Adam failed where Christ succeeds. And we're either condemned under Adam or we're, we have everlasting life yeah, in Christ. And I wouldn't disagree with the covenant of redemption at all in the sense sure. that God and Christ, the Trini- there was a Trinitarian uh, promise made sure, before sure. the foundation of the, uh, the earth, right, that God would give to the son of people and ultimately that sure. the spirit would, pro- would apply sure. what Christ has procured. And so we know that that's happening. It's working well, out. Well, and some time. of the debate is what all entails the covenant of redemption, sure. where that falls in the temporally, I guess. Yeah. Um, but that's a whole, yeah. That, the, 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 go ahead, Jason. The phrase uh, covenant of redemption is not even in the scripture. 
Sure. Uh, neither is neither that, is covenant of works. Right, as we just said just a moment ago. Sure. This is interesting from the um, Table Talk magazine. Um, there's an article. This is October 2020. There's several ar- articles actually uh, in this speaking to covenant theology, and the writer says the covenant of works, sometimes called the covenant of creation, are the Adamic covenant. The covenant of works is the covenant between God and Adam as the representatives of all people who descend from him by ordinary generation. Under the terms of this condition, God promised to confirm Adam in a state of life or to give him eternal life. But the difference in this, what I just read in the 1689, is no, that's not—Adam already has life. Now he just— commanded to obey. Well, I think so. That's what the scripture doesn't say. There's no place in scripture that says, Adam, if you do this, you'll live. Right. Adam lives. Adam's living. Right. Right. And Adam is told, he creates a a man, he breathes life into him and now says, here's what you're commanded to do, obey. Right. Right. Where we see the problem arises in paragraph two in our confession or, you know, is when Adam breaks God's rules, right, and, and, and cast himself into sin in that sense. And then there, there becomes a, new, a necessity for God to condescend a second time, right, right. Uh, in, in this sense. So he's condescended in the beginning to give Adam life, not because Adam's earned it, but because God saw fit to give Adam life, right? right? Whatever we want to call that, that's the original condescension, or condescension, condescension and that's the original um, necessity of God swearing an oath or, or giving a covenant, a promise, right, to Adam in the beginning was because Adam couldn't do anything to earn. Uh, uh, that's why we see this gap. This is what he's originally talking about, paragraph one. But the necessity becomes increased and different when Adam sins. Right. Right. So now it's not just, a, um, I promise to give you life. Now you've fallen into death. So we've got to restore you. And how are we going to do that? Right. So what we're saying is that um, we've talked a little bit about a covenant of redemption that you don't see the term in scripture, but we would uh, agree with the idea, this Trinitarian covenant before time. Um, we're saying we don't necessarily hold to this covenant of works, which again is not a term that is in Scripture. We're not holding to that through the 1689. Well, it does speak to it, and I, I would I would say I do hold that there was a pre-fall covenant with Adam. It's chapter 20 of the Confession, but um, specifically Nehemiah Cox, one of our Baptist forefathers, um, spoke to this specifically with the covenant, if I can get my... Surface Pro to work here. Um, Nehemiah Cox wrote this, uh, and this is found in a book called Covenant Theology from Adam to Christ, uh, speaking of John Owen's works and Nehemiah Cox. He writes this on page 51, as to the terms and condition of this covenant that God made with Adam and all mankind in him, it was a covenant of works. With respect to immediate privilege and relationship, it was a covenant of friendship. With regard to the promised reward, it was a covenant of rich bounty and goodness, but it did not include or intimate the least iota of pardoning mercy. While its law was perfectly observed, it raised man within a degree of the blessed angels, but the breach of that law inevitably brought him under under that curse which sank him to the society of apostate devils and left him under a misery like theirs. Under this covenant... Man was left to the freedom of his own will. 
It was in his own power and choice either to obey and be eternally happy or to sin and to expose himself to eternal misery. He was not so confirmed in grace that he, did not, that he could not sin and die, but he was endowed with that power and restitute of nature that he might not have sinned nor ever died. Though he did not have a non posse peccare, uh, which is the, na- the, the, these, there are multiple views of the nature of man. The ability not to the sin. The ability not to sin. And so a non posse mori, yet he had a posse non peccare, and so a posse non mori. So he had a, the capability not to sin. This was talking about Adam. Remember, this is pre-fall. So Nehemiah Cox finishes his thought. He was a perfect, though mutable, creature and had every possible advantage of moral persuasion to make him constant in his obedience. He could not be without a clear conviction of the greatest obligation of this, both in point of duty and in gratitude toward his creator and covenant God. He had present happiness and future hope in the way of his duty and fair warning of the misery that sin would bring on him. That's We see that in Genesis 2.17 um, in the proclamation of that curse, which was the sanction of the law given to him. So uh, I, I read all of that to say that there, there are multiple positions, I just want, I guess, for, for our conversation. In Reformed theology, there are multiple positions held either on the Baptist side or the Reformed side or the Presbyterian side. Those are three different Reformed theological traditions um, that would hold. uh, There's room for, I think, disagreement, healthy disagreement within Reformed theological tradition. I actually don't have an issue with the covenant of works. Yeah, neither do I. That's not my problem. Neither do I. I'm just saying what I think I don't want to give, I don't want to read into um, a notion of the covenant of works you know, what maybe the Presbyterians didn't mean, okay? So what I mean is that um, what I don't, if I hold a covenant of works, if I believe that, what I do not believe is in that covenant is a promise, a promise uh, uh, for life based upon obedience. Correct. Because the Correct. Bible doesn't Correct. give us that. In fact, in well, Job... Well, no, I don't know that anyone's arguing that. Do you know of anyone that's arguing that No, but that I'm just, that was my point from the beginning, though. I don't know that anyone I think the has... only reason that we don't use that language mm-hmm. here is because when you say works, it the assumption that the thing that can be read into that is what God has said is, if you do this, you'll live. If you do this, you'll die. And he didn't say that to Adam. He had given Adam life. And yes, there was whatever we want to call it. There is something going on here, right? But... Um, and I don't have a problem using the covenant of works as long as it doesn't include with it the idea that what God said was, if you do this, you'll earn eternal life. Yes. Because that's never been an option. Job says it. He says, even if I were righteous, what would you owe me? Right? Luke, like, like, like I said, the point is that the two texts that they give here in the confession are both of the same notion. Sure. What sure. man is obligated to give, God doesn't have to reward. Because it's an obligation, because of the creation, creator distinctive. And the point that the first paragraph makes is there is a gap between God and man. Yes. Man cannot earn life, so God condescended. Sure. And he sure. gave him life. And I think I think the, the terminology of the covenant of works versus the covenant of grace that is, uh, I don't even want to, I, I dare to say this, but superimposed on scripture in, a, in an attempt to make sense of what's there, right? This is pre-fall. I think it's just this, I think it's a great way to say that there is a gap between God and man, but there also needs to be a recognition that Adam, pre-fall, 
is in a different category than us post-fall. No doubt. And you made and the so point with his is, ability not to sin this and is so a forth helpful, and so on. Yeah, yeah, Nehemiah Cox makes that makes yeah. that point. And so um, let's move on to paragraph two. This is kind of more the detail in this chapter seven. Paragraph two of the confession reads this way. Since humanity brought itself under the curse of the law by its fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. In this covenant, he freely offers to sinners life and salvation through Jesus Christ. What a glorious truth that is. Uh On their part, he requires faith in him that they may be saved and promises to give his Holy Spirit to all who who are ordained to eternal life to make them willing and able to believe. And even this particular paragraph footnotes Genesis 2.17 and then moves us forward immediately to Galatians 3.10 and Romans chapter 3 and so forth. So, Philip, would you would you pick us up well, here? Yeah, on the really. This paragraph? is really simple. Man, uh, man does he falls. Man commits sin, and when he does, whatever was going on in the garden, something has to change, right? If God is going to redeem man, or if man is going to have life, God must act. So we have this covenant of grace because of man's sin, and then what we see this covenant of grace explained as in two ways here. One in the universal offer of grace to all man, and then the particular particular application of grace to the elect. And that's really what we have in this paragraph, right? We have this statement where God freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ if, and the requirement is faith, right? If they'll believe, place their faith in him, it's a universal call. All that believe will be saved. That is part of the covenant of grace. It makes an appeal, a universal appeal to all men. The particularity of that covenant was that God, and I don't even like the word promised unless it's a Trinitarian promise, maybe determines, if is better, determines to give unto those who are ordained unto eternal life the Holy Spirit to make them willing to believe and so forth. So we have the particularity or the application of of this covenant of grace to a particular people, but a universal call to all men who would, who would, who would, uh, if they would repent and believe, right? Right. So that's what the paragraph teaches, I think. Which is, is pretty cut and dry there. Yeah. And the, the, the thing that I guess we need to remember as we think about the Old Testament, particularly when we read in the, the, the narratives of the Old Testament, the prophecy of the Old Testament, we see those uh, covenants that are being made with Noah, uh, with Moses, with David. And then each of those covenants has promises, conditions, and signs, right? So the promise then um, for the covenant with Noah is that God will sustain life and the seasons and time so that now the gospel can go forth. And there can be a particular pattern of uh, time and sequence, and the church can trust in that and do the work of evangelism. And um, there's conditions then for the church to obey. Um, There is the willingness for the people to trust God and have their children and have their families. Uh, Then there's the sign of the rainbow. Yeah. Uh, That's just one example. And we could do that with all the the covenants. And when we talk about this particular people of this second paragraph, so we've got the promise of salvation given because there's one who's going to come. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. Uh, The condition is faith, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Mm -hmm. 
And then the sign is baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? So these then become the marks of what covenant uh, language speak to us about. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, you know, we really see the covenant as a God promising a group of people to do a certain thing. Yes. And, uh, you know, he redeems his people from the ark, like you're talking about. Right. We see uh, the Passover, uh, this promise at the Passover, which is a culmination of a whole bunch of promises, really, mm-hmm. but that God has redeemed the people. And then we mm-hmm. see it at the cross, mm-hmm. right? Right. And so we see all three of these things, really God fulfilling and, um, you know, and, and bringing his people. All three of these really represent, if you will, um, the covenant of grace, where God has said, right. I'm going to redeem a people. And he's redeemed a people. Eight. And all the animals, really. Right. But in a real sense, um, he, he he shows himself off in grace, in this covenant of grace with Noah. And then at the Passover, again, by passing over and not destroying, right? He's he's made a promise to redeem that people, and he does. And then at the cross, we see the same thing. Right. So we see the the, the covenant with Noah to redeem people, mm-hmm. the, that the idea of life and continuity and a continuation of, of life, and in, in there's no flood to destroy those right. patterns. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant, mm-hmm. uh, the Mosaic covenant, mm-hmm. right? And then we see the Davidic covenant. Right. And all of these would be under the umbrella of the covenant of grace. Right. Correct. And then finally the new covenant. Actually, yes. more almost like a progressive revealing. Yes. Um, there, there's This is the... Uh, uh, That's actually the shadow, three. <laughs> the shadow and substance conversation mm-hmm. that... Uh, post or starting in Genesis, the Proto Evangelion or Evangelion, yes. Genesis three fifteen. That's right. That's where God, over the scope of Scripture and over the scope of history, progressively reveals and culminates in Christ. Right, uh, He is the mediator of the covenant of grace. He is the fulfillment. Mm-hmm. The uh, He He uh, fulfills the promises of the covenant of grace for us. Um, and so it's been said, I can't remember who said it, but the covenant of grace for Christ is a covenant of works because he kept the law. He kept, now sure. I, you don't want to go too far down that road, but it's right. an interesting thought. It's covenant of grace for us, but he put the work in. Christ yes. on our behalf put the work in for mm-hmm. us and met the requirement that God held over us or yeah. holds over us. So, so what we see, you're, you're absolutely right. In paragraph, he's going to deal more with yes, this, but there's a progression, <laughs> but there's a progression in the revelation. And what we That's see right. is that this promise of a seed that'll crush the Satan's head yes. is revealed progressively That's right. in each of these covenants. That's right. Right. And God fulfilling his promises to Abraham and to David and to Noah and so forth. Right. He's fulfilling these things all the way through and progressively. We see the picture get a little bigger and a little brighter and a little clearer and a little better. And then we get to the cross and, Pow! Right there, it is that's wide right. open. That's right. And um, so that's exactly what. what and we Presbyterian see. theology, to to as far as I am aware, and so far as I've 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 done my own digging into this, um, there is an there's a hyperinflation of the Abrahamic covenant with the idea of circumcision and its direct, or so they say, this direct connection to um, Christ and His work and salvation and regeneration, and. I think that that's a it's an erroneous position just because of what the covenants uh, before the New Testament, all the Old Testament covenants were. Uh, and my terminology here is weak, so I apologize on the front end. But I guess the only way to really is progressive. There is a, a revealing of the covenant of grace, the Abrahamic covenant, 
by itself, the Noahic covenant by itself, the Davidic covenant, by, those aren't just the covenant of grace in themselves. Right. They're part of this larger, grander scope of history that God was revealing progressively um, in time uh, to his people through the word. We have this progressive nature of scripture. Everything culminates in Christ, right? In the Old Testament, it's that, fulfilled in him. So that That's the covenant framework that we talked about from paragraph one, the last word, he expressed this through a covenant framework. That's yes. right. That's the covenant framework that's being laid out before us in Scripture. Right. This progressive redemption story. Well, and that's exactly the point that paragraph three is going to make. Ultimately, all this stuff that's 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 being unfolded for us is really an outworking of the covenant of redemption. This promise that God made to redeem a people, where He gave His this people to to His Son, and they're, it's going to be worked out by the course, Holy Spirit. Of so it's really a working out of this covenant of redemption, and He does it through an act of grace on his part, a promise of grace to save his people. And that's the well, only way this yes. can ultimately transpire. So the transpire. covenant of redemption is the overarching plan that is uh, promised and kept by God himself. Yes, and it's worked out the through this act of grace. The covenant of grace has two parties. It has God and man mm-hmm. in the sense of uh, there's a requirement on man and Christ fulfills that for man. But the covenant of redemption happens outside of time. It happened prior to time. The covenant of grace is in time. Well, it's and that's, temporal. And that's exactly in that the sense. point that if we go back to the first paragraph we're making, that even even in the initial work in Adam in the beginning was an act of grace. It, because of the gap between them. Even Adam then couldn't earn. We can no longer earn it here, but even Adam in the state of perfection, right, without sin, couldn't ultimately do. Well, so that, God, that it required do, yes. a, But it required a condescension yes. then. It's yes. just the way it does now. Yeah, and, and the reason why we have the distinction between that Paul makes in Romans 5, I keep bringing this up, this is crucial to our understanding of the covenants, the covenantal framework of Scripture, but also how God has dealt with his people throughout all of time and will continue to do so is either we're in Adam and there is a sense of a covenant of works. If you are in Adam, we've, that's Romans chapter two. Um, okay, man, if you want to, if you want to be right with God, well, you better keep the law, right? Do your best and good luck. But then there's this other, uh, you're either in Adam or under or in Christ in Romans chapter five. And this is where um, Christ has fulfilled that work for you on your behalf, and you therefore are. We have this imputation of righteousness and sin. Second um, Corinthians five twenty one. Okay, let's uh, let's get to our third paragraph as we wrap this one up on chapter seven of God's covenant. Let me read through paragraph three. This covenant is revealed in the gospel. It was revealed first of all to Adam in the promise of salvation through the seed of the woman. After that, it was revealed step by step until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. This covenant is based on the eternal covenant transaction between the Father and the Son concerning the redemption of the elect. Only through the grace of this covenant have those saved uh, from among the descendants of fallen Adam obtained life and blessed immortality. Humanity is now utterly incapable of being accepted by God on the same terms on which Adam was accepted in his state of innocence. Where do you guys want to take that as we're finishing up? I know we already spoke we, to we, a lot of that. We, we did. kind of got ahead of ourselves there. Um, 
Well, that's okay. Really, what's what's being this? There's three things that are being, uh, or actually four things that are really being addressed here. One is the progressive nature of it, right? Yes. So it's progressive. The second thing is that it's founded in a covenant with Christ, right? This is a covenant of redemption. And just to be clear, we're talking about the covenant of grace yes. specifically here yes. in this chapter or paragraph three, covenant of grace. The third thing that's represented here is the necessity of this covenant of grace for salvation. Nobody yes. is saved yes. unless they're saved through yes. this work of God in this covenant of grace in Christ, yes. right? And then fourthly... Um, because man is utterly incapable without such. So if there's a statement to man's utter depravity here, man's the necessity of this covenant of grace, it that it's founding um, in, in, a, in an eternal redemptive covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? And then it, the progressive nature of it. That's really the totality of that paragraph. And so um, really the only part we didn't talk about so far is the necessity of it all. But um, but I think most of us know that. I think most of us recognize through the 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 ordinary you know preaching of the word, whether we talk about it in the context of a covenant of grace or not, we recognize that man is lost, and if God hasn't acted, man remains lost. Right. Let's go to the text uh, in the Old Testament that speaks of the new covenant, uh, Jeremiah thirty-one. Mm-hmm. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So we've already spoke about the the covenant with the different men, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and then David. And then we come again to the new covenant, which is given through to us through Christ. Right. And, and these words speak to that, this Jeremiah 31, 31 through uh, 34. Actually, if you go even back a little further, it makes the, it, it actually clarifies for us also what the, it's making the point that the confession's making at the end. The reason that God had to work was because man couldn't, right? Because the whole point, the reason he's doing all this is for his namesake. You've profaned me. You haven't kept my rules. And everybody says, that's the people of God. You are the people of God. Well, not this an act. I'm just going to act on my behalf, and let me tell you what I'm going to do. And then he says, here, I'm going to act in grace, and this is what I'm going to do. Right. Right? And so, but but the other thing that's so interesting about this, talking about the progressive nature of it, what we see proclaimed here about what God is going to do in this new covenant in Jeremiah, the apostles actually explain how he's done it in the in the gospels mm. when he says stuff like um you, now you have a new heart right when regeneration is explained to us in, in in John or in the in the epistles when Paul says now this is who you are in Christ right mm-hmm. he's actually explaining how the new covenant has been worked out in the believers right it's there's no distinction between the the epistles and these promises in the old testament they're saying here's what god's going to do and the, and we have the epistles explaining this is how god has done it and I think one of the important th- aspects of all the covenants, when we see it played out, whether it be the individuals or the new covenant, is that they all are God-initiated. 
Oh, absolutely. The, these are not man-driven. Every single one. That's right. right. That's right. And I think the beauty of it, I'll keep returning back to this, is the beauty of our hope in Christ that Paul speaks of in the New Testament, as well as uh, Christ himself, is that this is an initiated covenant um, with man by God, but it is Christ who keeps the terms and conditions of that covenant for us because it is something that we are totally and wholly incapable of on our own. And um, Philip, do you want? Do you have? Did you have any other comments on this final paragraph as we wrap things up? No, really. No, no. I'm just going to say, it, it, to me, it's amazing talking about the progressive nature of it. I'll go back to that for a second. Only because what we see, the law written on their hearts. I mean, we see that um, in Hebrews. Right again, restated. This is the the law written on their hearts that, that no one shall uh, be taught by his neighbor, but each one shall be taught by the Lord. That's Colossians, I believe. Right? I mean, I'm just saying. So Paul, we see these places where all these promises that are going to be ours in the new covenant, are, or we see them restated later on spoken to people who have experienced what God has promised to experience. And so we see this covenant of grace actually not only um, fulfilled in Christ, but then it's not abandoned. The terminology isn't even abandoned. We see it in the New Testament spoken of in that sense. So I'm just saying it is an act of grace from beginning to end, uh, all the way through. Um, I, I don't know. Um, I think that it's a wonderful uh, picture because where a covenant is, is, is a richer uh, concept than a dispensation, ultimately for me. Um, you know, it's not just the economy in which God worked. I mean, it's a promise, a sworn promise there, for there God There are promises, to act. there are sanctions, and yes. there are, are consequences for breaking of a covenant. There's, there, there are real... Um, think about if you sign a, uh, an agreement with a fellow man, and you both sign your name and date yeah. it, and there are terms and conditions mm-hmm. on, on both parties. Sure. One party will uphold the terms and conditions, and one will enforce them, mm-hmm. right? And there's, there's a mutual agreement. Um, you can't just rip up the document on your own. That document only can be ripped up if there's an agreement to rip it up by both parties. Yeah. There are con- uh, we, we see that played out on a smaller scale in a human level. So how much grander of a scale is this that magnifies this promise of redemption and this fulfillment of our redemption in, uh, that Jesus Christ makes on our behalf? Mm-hmm. Um, that we would have, we have no hope apart from Christ. This is what this teaches me and re- reminds me, is that God is not some um, uh, guy up in the, up in the sky who has said, "All right, here's the terms to be with me. Good luck on your you're on your own. Do your best." You know. Yeah, but you not only not only have hope, but the the, the idea of a covenant is that God has sworn to fulfill yes. what he's promised to fulfill. Yes. And so yes. the, the grace in all of this isn't just the yes. application of salvific benefits sure, to me, sure. but the comfort in knowing that God will actually keep his word, that he's a faithful yes. God, yes. really that he's a covenant-keeping yes. God, That's right? right? That he, That's what right. he said, he will do. And the confession says uses those words, and I love those words. He is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping yes. God, because ultimately... Man knows that he cannot keep a covenant. We are ultimately going to, like, there's just this huge gap. There's this huge chasm. God can and will keep his promises. We ultimately 
will not. We will fail. We right. are we are the unfaithful one. He is the faithful yes. one, right? And he did it because he wanted to. Yes. That was the point that in yes. the first paragraph made. His condescension yes. was of necessity, yes. but it was voluntary. Right. Yes. So closing up this this particular episode today on God's covenant, this is chapter seven. We've been discussing of the second London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. Uh, Fred Malone has a, a commentary, some commentary from the Founders Journal of 2017. You can access this online. Speaking of this particular chapter of the covenant of God, Fred Malone writes this good commentary. He says, um, speaking of the covenant theology of the Bible, that it's not meant to be studied or debated by sterile minds and cold hearts. It is the exciting truth of the eternal Father giving to his beloved Son a fallen people for his own to redeem by his incarnate blood and righteous life. It is the humbling truth that one so divine would gladly agree to his own suffering for such sinners. And it is the miraculous truth that the Holy Spirit would invade the rebel's heart to free them from their enemy's grip and to resurrect their dead souls, to embrace by faith alone the covenant mediator of their covenant father. Truly, the covenant theology of the Bible is a wonder of God's infinite grace, which brings him eternal glory from the lips of those covenant sons and daughters who eternally give thanks to his glorious name. And he goes on to say, it's my hope that this exposition of God's covenant of grace, uh, you can reference this article um, online from Fred Malone. Um, Well, once again, it's his hope that will inflame the hearts of Baptists everywhere to embrace the wonders of God's covenant theology revealed in scripture as we see it. So that wraps up today's episode. We hope that this has been of benefit to you. We thank you again, once again, for taking the time to listen to our episode of the Asking for a Friend podcast. Please like and share this podcast with whoever you think would be benefited from this, uh, either through your social media or maybe through text message. Um, And if there are any questions that you have as a listener, please go to our church's website, bbcemory.org, under the media tab, and you can uh, submit a question to us to consider for a podcast at a later date. Until next time, grace and peace be with you all.